Well, good morning, church. Happy Palm Sunday. It's good to see you all. I hope you all are having a great start to this Easter week. And as you heard uh, April cover it in the announcements, we've got several things in store for what is, for me, one of my favorite times of year. I love the opportunity to celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ in the many ways that we seek to do so intentionally. So I, I hope and pray you'll join us in a lot of those experiences on Friday and then on our services on Sunday as well. It should be a meaningful time for us as a church family. And uh, it is a, a way for us to continue and really begin to wrap up one of the series that we've been going through for the last several weeks through the season of Lent. And, and I just want to take you back a little bit to give you some context to what our whole goal and motivation has been so far in 2021. We, we really started the year by trying to set the tone by, by journeying through Hebrews 12 in this whole phrase of fixing your eyes on Jesus. And, and we worked through those first three verses of Hebrews 12, talking about being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We talked about running the race of perseverance that's been marked out for us and that we run that race, how? By fixing our eyes on Christ. And when you fix your eyes on Jesus, you see him as pioneer and perfecter of faith. And we get a chance to marvel at this gospel that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne room of God. He sits there with that authority, with that, that majesty and that honor. So when we go through difficulty, when we go through hardship, when we go through a disruption like we have this past year, we fix our eyes on him. We consider him who endured opposition at the hands of sinners so that why? So that we won't grow weary and lose heart. Right? That, that was the tone for the whole year. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, right? That we can continue to focus in on him. And so we're going to continue to do that the whole year. We're going to look at the parables of Jesus. We're going to look at some elements of revelation and what Jesus reveals to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. But right now, what we've been doing through the season of Lent is walking through the different names of Jesus or the titles of Jesus, descriptions of Jesus and who he is. And, and we've done this through a Lenten devotional guide that hopefully you've been able to utilize. And as, as you got that at the beginning of the Lenten season, we encourage you, use this is an opportunity to, to reflect upon your own personal relationship with Christ, right? How, how is that looking at this season of life? What is he leading you to do? What is he prompting in you? What is he asking you to work on? When you look at these names and these titles, what does it mean to you personally? And the hope is that through this journey, we, we approach the cross with a very thoughtful and introspective posture that allows us to truly see this gospel at work in our lives. We, we've explored this collectively on Sunday morning by looking at all these different names. We started with the actual name Jesus. We looked at Jesus as son of God, as servant, as teacher, last week as shepherd, and today we look at Jesus as king. Perfect title for Palm Sunday, right? This is the, the familiar part of the Christian calendar where it is often referred to as Jesus's triumphal entry. And it, it is a powerful introduction to the kingship of Jesus. And so where I want to begin today is I just want us to remind ourselves of this story. I don't know it's familiar for many of us. And so I, I want us to, to journey back to it so that it can hit us anew this morning as we reflect upon its significance in our lives. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 21. This won't be the primary text today, but it at least sets the tone for Palm Sunday. And let's take a look at these first 11 verses that refer to Jesus's entry into Jerusalem for this final week of his life as we prepare for Easter Sunday. So picking up in chapter 21, starting in verse one, it says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. 
Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle, riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. That's the question. Who is this? You see all these different names and references, prophet, Hosanna, but there in Zechariah, the verse uh, that is quoted there in verse five, he is your king. If you have this subheading like I do in my Bible, it says Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. And so this becomes a, a very important text for us to understand this title and this role that is so often attributed to Christ. And, and I want us to give it some uh, thoughtful in, uh, consideration this morning. One of the things that typically should jump off the surface that you, when you read through Matthew 21, is the way and the intentionality with which Matthew writes his gospel to consistently remind us that Jesus fulfills scripture. He does this throughout his gospel. You can go back to the early few chapters of Matthew's gospel and see the, the birth and the foretelling of the birth was fulfillment of scripture. It's woven throughout Matthew's gospel, but especially here. And what is significant about it in Matthew 21 is that it seems that it's not just Matthew drawing these conclusions for his readers, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> but it's Jesus himself who is fully aware of the prophecy that he's fulfilling, right? This was done so that he could fulfill what was written. And so it comes with this tremendous significance that Jesus is king. And yet with all that intentionality and with, with all that context, I would venture to guess that for you and me, it still falls a little flat. Because what is a king? <clears throat> and what kind of familiarity do you have with kingship? Like when you hear the word king, what do you picture? You know, you, we don't have real understanding of what a king is. Our closest understanding of royalty is when we watch the Oprah special with Prince Harry and Meghan, right? Like that's the closest we get to the royal family and this idea of kingship. We get introduced to it through Disney movies and history books, but we don't really understand what it means. And yet at the same time, we do have a fundamental understanding of that title and that role. And, and it's funny how that's often shaped. I was thinking about some of my earliest introductions to this idea of kingship. And I kept coming back to that childhood game, King of the Mountain. You guys ever play that game? King of the Hill, not the show. But you found that mountain or you found that little hill as a kid and you get on top of it and then you're the king. And your goal is to stay on top of the mountain. But all your friends will come up and they'll try to push you off and they'll try to assume that position of kingship, right? Even in the innocence of a childhood game, you learn a lot about this role as king. Right? Somebody that has power, somebody that has higher status and rank that is there to rule over and have dominion over others. Right? That's, that's kind of our understanding of kingship. You look at Britannica.com, those, those are the definitions, rule, power, authority, dominion. And, and that's the picture that we have as a king. But have you ever wondered, where did that come from? Like, where'd the whole idea, this whole concept of kingship, where, where does it find its origins? Ever given that any thought or consideration? Uh, you'd have to 
kind of weave through some really interesting parts of history to even begin to answer that question. Because naturally you'd start thinking, well, who was the first king? But that's kind of an unanswerable question. Uh, When you start to dig into that, you look at archaeologists and historians that at this point are really dealing with fragments of broken vases and weird writings on, on cave walls that use languages that nobody really understands. And that's just what's written. We don't know what existed prior to things that were written. There's the Sumerian king list that a lot of historians and archaeologists will refer to, and it's pretty interesting, but even it is not purely reliable because it seems to have a mixture of kings that were both maybe real and mythological. And so it's very difficult to to determine who was this first king and where did this whole concept originate. But I came across an article that was written by Nathan Chandler in How Stuff Works, where he was interviewing a bunch of Ivy League professors about the origins of kingship and this whole concept. And he had a pretty interesting exchange with one of the professors. Uh, the professor was named uh, Eric Fromm, or Eckert Fromm. He was a professor of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Yale University. <clears throat> and so uh, Chandler copies or, or includes in his article a pretty interesting exchange that gives us a, a, a suggestion of where kingship originated. Here's how he depicts it in his article. As to where the idea of kingship came from, Fromm believes that it was directly tied to a need to organize labor. In ancient Mesopotamia, there were large numbers of construction workers, farmers, craftsmen, shepherds, and sellers of goods. To get all this done, a managerial class emerged and siphoned off a share of the rural wealth for its own good. The person at the head of the administrative ladder and possibly also the military troops needed to protect the economic activities facilitated in this way would eventually be considered king. And to legitimize the economic inequality inherent in the system, a royal ideology was created that promoted kingship as a divinely sanctioned institution. Okay, so let me, let me summarize that, because to me, this seems very plausible. We don't know it definitively, but it seems plausible, right? You, you can even go back to the garden. God banishes people from the garden. What's part of the curse? You have to toil. You have to work the ground. You have to labor. Labor is a part of our reality. And so as humanity fills the earth, labor is a natural uh, livelihood. It's a natural expression of our humanity. And the more people that fill the earth, the more organized that labor becomes. And eventually, you have a managerial class that develops to help make it work for the common good, so to speak. And as that managerial class develops, inequality develops, right? They begin to possibly siphon off part of that wealth that's being materialized, part of that power and authority to benefit themselves to the neglect of others. And as that power is achieved, that person that kind of runs that managerial class assumes and becomes uh, this, this title of king, so to speak. And what's interesting to me is in this description that you find here from Eric Fromm in this article, he says, first of all, it's, it's a system of, of inequality. So you already see a breakdown of the neighbor, right? It's, it's a system of exploitation to a certain level. Somebody is benefit at the expense of someone else. But what is also interesting and what is such a common thread in understanding kingship is that in order for those people in that leadership role to legitimize that power and to preserve that power and maintain that power, what do they do? They declare that kingship is divinely sanctioned. And so what you, what you find throughout history books, is the divine right of kings. Kings are born, right? I mean, you you don't just earn it. It's inherited because God gave it to you, and that allows you to preserve this 
inequality. It's a really interesting development. And the more you think about it, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like the garden. It sounds like that temptation that, that pierces the human heart, doesn't it? Right? Because, because what is that temptation that leads you astray? No, 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 no. You won't die. You'll be like God. And so what a king does is a king establishes a certain power, a certain status that is above others to determine right and wrong, good from evil. And in that declaration that it is a divinely instituted uh, uh, opportunity, then it becomes seen that these kings are not just God's representatives, but in some cases, God himself, or divine in and of themselves. And that allows them to be like God. And that shows us the impulse towards sin. What's interesting is the whole concept of kingship is where the heart of sin begins to flourish. It breaks the relationship with God and it breaks the relationship with the neighbor. The opposite of what he intends. And so this whole system develops and we can see that God is not pleased with it. And you can see that in his word. When you begin to search in the scriptures for what God says about kings and the whole nature of this role, you can find it in 1 Samuel 8. Because here we are, Israel has been taken into all new levels of prosperity at God's hand in his deliverance. He saved them from Egypt. He's, he's defeated their enemies. He's allowed them to inherit the promised land. And at this point in time, Samuel sits as kind of the chief leader, as the chief prophet, who is the one who can be the representative of God's word. But the elders of Israel gather around and they start looking at Samuel and his sons and they're going, uh, we don't like where your sons are headed. Right? They're wayward, they're messed up. So they come to Samuel and they say, uh, we want a king. And this hurts Samuel's feelings. It displeases Samuel according to the scripture. So he goes to the Lord and tells them what they're requesting. And what does God say? What does he tell Samuel? Well, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. You've rejected me as their king, despite all that I've done for them. And then God goes on to tell Samuel of this solemn warning that if they pursue this desire, here's what it's going to look like. And he, he details the rights of the king. Let me give you a summarization of those rights as it's found in 1 Samuel 8. He will take your sons and make them serve his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Position of vulnerability, going into battle, you don't want to be in front of the chariot. Some will be commanders. Others will plow his ground and reap his harvest. Some will have to make weapons of war. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves. He will take a tenth of your grain, your male and female servants, and the best of your cattle, and he will take them for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. That's how God feels about a king. And he tells Samuel that, and Samuel relays that to the people. And what do they say? We don't care. Give us a king. And so Samuel takes the word back to the Lord, and he says, do as they've asked. And there comes Saul. And what's interesting is that as you begin to read through the rest of the scriptures and you read through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and you see these stories, there are moments, sure, where a king does a good job, a decent job in ruling, but time and time again, the refrain 
that really captures that trajectory of Israel's history is so-and-so became king and did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because kingship gives rise to sin. And what's remarkable about it, too, is, is because of it often being seen as divinely sanctioned, a divinely sanctioned institution, and in many respects throughout the course of human history, a king that would claim to be God's representative or, or to be divine himself, it's not just that it's where sin flourishes, but it's a faulty depiction of God. God is sitting there watching the kings of the earth going, that is not who I am. That's the context of king. And then comes Jesus. And so Jesus enters into Jerusalem not just to fulfill scripture, but to radically redefine what a king is, who a king is, right? And that's what Old Testament prophecies begin to point to. As, as you see the decline of human kings, as great as David was or any of the others, Josiah, right, any of those that are notable, they were still flawed. They still made mistakes. Sin still crept in. And so after the kingdom falls and it leads to the ultimate demise of Israel and they're actually living in exile, they shift their, their, their gaze, their focus, and they start to look back to where it should have been the whole time. God is king. Psalm 47, right, to see God is king. Isaiah 9, this, this anticipation of a Messiah, of this perfect king who will sit on David's throne and establish it and uphold it with righteousness and justice from that time on and forever. They look for this perfect king. And so when Jesus comes in, he's saying, I'm fulfilling those scriptures and redefining what a king really is in the process. This is the type of king that I am. And that's what makes Zechariah 9 so powerful. So now flip to your left just a little bit to Zechariah chapter 9. It's at the end of the Old Testament, so don't flip too far. Flip over to Zechariah 9, and we're going to use this passage now to better understand not just that Jesus is fulfilling the scripture, but the sort of king that Jesus is, and how radically different it is from the institution of kingship as a whole. We're just going to look at two verses, Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 10, which is what Matthew quotes. 10 10 gives us a little bit more of a complete picture, so we're including that in our scripture today. So picking up in verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, this is the description of the kingship of Jesus, one of several in the Old Testament that point to this Messiah as king and the type of perfect rule and reign that he will bring forward. And so I just want to consider these descriptions this morning as a reminder of what this triumphal entry means for us on a Palm Sunday, the sort of king that we are hailing and crowning today when we look to Jesus as king. First and foremost, he is righteous. You see that description, and it's a word that we throw around in church all the time. I don't know if we always give it the sort of introspection and thoughtfulness that it deserves, that it merits. Righteous means to be upright, to be just. Right? In many ways, it means to be without sin, perfect before God and perfect before others. Now, that's a remarkable claim that no king and no leader that we have ever known can truly adhere to. 
I mean, think about that. You, you think about leaders, and part of what you want of a leader is to, to earn your trust. You want them to be trustworthy. You want them to have integrity. But the reality is, is that we, we don't always trust them. Because how many stories, how many examples do we have of people in positions of authority and leadership that continue to break that trust because of a lack of integrity? People that have hurt us, that have harmed us because of moral failures, whatever it may be, and time and time again, we see the unrighteousness of those in positions of power and authority that allow them to abuse that power and authority. So how refreshing, how healing, comforting to know that Jesus is righteous without sin before God and before others. And, and the implications of that is not just then that Jesus is trustworthy, which is kind of the first point. You can trust him, right? He, he demands and deserves the fullness of your trust, but it's not just your trust. He will rule with righteousness, right? He will rule with justice, what an incredible thing to consider, right? Because you think about all the injustices of the world and how many times we're conf confronted with injustice. And I was thinking about how we see this play out in our society. I came across a website known as the Innocence Project recently as I was researching this that is focused, it's an organization that's focused on uh, wrongful convictions. And, and their hope is to help exonerate people who have been wrongfully convicted. And, and you look at some of the, the statistics that are often offered on this conversation, and it seems like it's really hard to quantify exactly how many wrongful convictions take place each year because we don't know if they're wrong. Uh, but estimates based on other data would, would venture a guess that it's probably around 10,000 wrongful convictions a year. Now, what, what stood out to me about the Innocence Project was that on average, it takes about 16 years for a wrongful conviction to be exonerated. So the number that they kept presenting to you was not the number of wrongful convictions, but the number of years wrongfully spent in prison. So in 2018, according to their data, and the number of folks that they had exonerated added up to 200 wrongful years people spent in prison, just that their organization helped. Think about that. Think about all the wrongful convictions and all the things that people have lost all the memories, opportunities, the freedoms because of injustice. And that's just wrongful convictions. We don't even have a way to measure folks that weren't convicted or tried at all. They just got away with it. Right? And this is in our society where I, I would be confident to say we have a really decent system of justice. Though it's imperfect, by comparisons, there are some things that we can, we can be grateful for and yet still... Even in our society, we are swamped with numerous examples of injustice. So imagine, just imagine for a moment how incredible it will be, and it is, to know that Jesus will rule with perfect righteousness and justice. It's what our hearts long for. It's what our society needs. It's what we should yearn for. Jesus is righteous. He's not just righteous, he's victorious. You know, a lot of times when we consider the victory of Jesus, a lot of it speaks to us personally. And there's no doubt that, that when Jesus is Lord of your life, he allows you and, and equips you and strengthens you to gain victory over certain challenges, trials, obstacles, hardships, addictions, fill in the blank. And I think that's a, that's a reasonable way to read this here, right? That he's victorious and he will 
create victories for his people as king. That's part of what kings do. They help you defeat your enemies. But, but what's really being said here, a little bit more explicitly, is that God will make him victorious. So the word means deliver, to save. And so the message here is that God will save Jesus. He will deliver Jesus. He will make him victorious. And that should be a very dominant thought on our minds when you think about Jesus entering into Jerusalem in preparation for Good Friday. Because what, what Jesus was going to do was face the ultimate enemy of death, right? Face the, the ultimate battle, wage the ultimate war in that moment with the death on the cross. And what we see here in Zechariah 9 is God saying, I'm going to make him victorious over death. I'm going to deliver him from that agony and pain because it's impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Jesus claims the ultimate victory over death. And so as much as we look to overcome our own hardships and our own obstacles that we face in our life, we should rest confidently in the fact that the ultimate victory belongs with Christ. He didn't lose. He won the war. He won the battle. And so what that allows you and me to do is to go through life and say, yes, when I encounter these struggles and these hardships and I cry out, who can save me from this body of sin and death? Praise be to God because he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Our king is victorious. He's not just victorious, he's lowly, humble, gentle, poor. These are all the different words that different translations use. And this is also an incredible redefining of kingship. And you think about kings in and of themselves, it's an inherently arrogant position, but leadership as a whole tends to lead us towards arrogance and pride, doesn't it? Again, we, we don't have the ability to, to fully relate to it in our society, but you think about leadership and positions of authority, be it in a business, an organization, a church, whatever it could be, right? It, it lends itself towards pride because we live in a highly competitive environment. And so you're typically competing with other organizations, other businesses, or even within your organization so that you can climb that ladder, achieve certain status, achieve certain importance. And so when you finally do it, guess what? You feel validated. And it's real easy to point to yourself. Look at what I did. Look at these skills that got me here, these accomplishments that got me here. So that by the time you reach that position of authority and leadership, pride is bubbling up beneath the surface. And then you begin to lead accordingly, right? Where you put your own interests, your trust in your own abilities ahead of anyone else's, and you begin to exploit just like you see the kings do time and time again. The, the good news for us in our society is that we have several safeguards against this pride. You can lose your job. You can get fired even if you're at the top of the line. You can you cannot be reelected. Whatever it is, there are certain levels of accountability. But for a king, there's nothing, no accountability. So that pride could just run amok, man. It could just be stirred and fed and fostered. And here comes Jesus who leads a life as a king in humility. When a king's typically set themselves up on their thrones and create entire systems, not just a few subjects, but systems and, and infrastructure that says, serve me, sustain me and my power. Jesus enters into the discussion and on this week does the opposite. He doesn't come to be served, but to serve, humbling himself to the point of washing his disciples' feet. No king led in such a way. 
And what's so powerful about humility is it takes you to the heart of the gospel, takes you to the essence of the gospel, because as we see in Philippians, what is humility, right? It's considering the needs of others above your own. And so when Jesus is willing to sacrifice his own life, to set his own needs, his own wants, yes, his even very life aside for the needs of others, it is the ultimate expression of humility. It's the essence of the gospel. That's the sort of king we serve, a king who is humble and gentle. And part of that humility is, is depicted through the riding of a donkey. It's really interesting, and it actually kind of serves as a bridge between humility and peace that is declared in verse 10 in Zechariah. Because here's what's interesting. A king would typically ride on a horse to declare war, conquest, victory. Like that was a position of authority and rule. But kings would from time to time ride on donkeys as a gesture of peacetime. And so it's interesting and very important to note that there's a reason Jesus came in riding on a donkey because he was trying to declare that his reign is a reign of peace. That's exactly what we need to see under his reign. And verse 10 in Zechariah really begins to explain both how that peace is achieved and the extent of that peace. I love the way that it's depicted. Follow along with me again in verse 10. He says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. What you have referenced there in verse 10 are all the main elements of war. And Jesus is getting rid of them. Right? Chariots, horses, bows. Those were all instruments of war. And Jesus is eradicating them under his reign. Let's bring that into modern construct, like modern times in our modern context. Think about all the elements of war that poses threats in our society, in our existence. I came across uh, this Department of Homeland Security report that was written back in October of 2020. It's, it's a threat assessment report. And, and I found it, and I was just reading through the table of contents, man, and it just kind of reminds you of some of the things that threaten us and threaten a state of peace and peacefulness. The table of contents talks about cyber threats, foreign influence, economic security, terrorism, transnational criminal organizations, illegal immigration, natural disasters, all these things are threats to peace. And I'm sure if I'd read through all the details, we would have seen more discussions on nuclear disarmament, drone strikes, concentration camps, genocide, civil war. Think about all the instruments of war that we're constantly hearing about and the threat uh, towards peace and the, the things that give rise to chaos and hostility. And then, and then here's what I thought. I'd love for you to, to join me in this. Imagine where all of that is gone. Like, can you, can you picture that? Think about such a world where all those threats, all those concerns, all those, those antagonists towards peace are gone. What an incredible hope for us. Can you imagine how incredible it will be to experience that level of peace on that day where Jesus fully eradicates the instruments of war. And what's equally powerful about Zechariah's description here is not just how it will be achieved, but the extent to which this peace will reign. Jesus doesn't come to just bring peace to Israel. It's not just for a select few. It's not just, hey, this group right here. It's, it's from sea to sea. 
from the river to the ends of the earth. He comes to proclaim it to the nations. This peace that is offered through Jesus is for every tongue, tribe, and nation. It knows no limits. Right? This is Ephesians 2 coming back to life, right? That Jesus went to preach peace to those who were far, those who were near, and he brings the two one. We all find this common humanity, this common civility, this common hope and, and neighborliness through Jesus Christ. He brings this ultimate peace. And so think about these descriptions. Righteousness, victory, humility, peace. Right, if the, if the inherent nature of kingship allows humans' propensity towards sin to flourish, and is, is this depiction that God says, that's not who I am, Jesus comes in and does the opposite. Gives us a new image, says this is who God is, this is what kings should be, and in so doing, the first, the broken expression of kingship is where relationship with God and the neighbor breaks down, but with Jesus, it's where those things are restored. We put it in a right relationship with God, and we truly begin to love the neighbor. What a remarkable description of this king that we serve. But here, here's how I wanna close it, because as great as those four descriptions are, it's not my favorite part of Zechariah not these two verses, right? The, the, the actual piece to me that is so uh, compelling about this description is not really an adjective, it's, it's something else. But in order for us to, to appreciate, I wanna give some additional context to what kings that typically operate from that sinful disposition do. And, and one of the ways to paint this picture would be that if you were bored and you wanted to go back and read uh, Pharaoh's interactions with Moses, go back to those chapters in Exodus, Exodus 9, 10, 11, 12, kinda in that range, where, where Moses is constantly interacting with Pharaoh, you know what you'll see time and time again is one of the main actions of Pharaoh? Like what, you'll see this word just appear over and over again. The main thing he does, you know what he does? He summons. That's what he does. Over and over again, Pharaoh summoned Moses. Right, he, he had him brought forth. That's what kings do. You, the king doesn't come to you, you come to the king. And when you're summoned by a king, you typically are brought in to respond to certain accusations. You're, you're brought in to give a defense, right? To give an account for what it is that he wants from you or what he thinks you've done. And so it's a really significant power of, of authority that a king has. And I don't know that we've ever really experienced that. I don't know if you've ever been summoned by someone before. Um, I was trying to think of examples in my own life. I could only think of one. I, I thought of this time in high school <laughs> where... I was in class, and in, in high school, I don't know what it was like in your high school, but in our high school, uh, which was a long time ago, uh, you would get uh, these office workers that would come to your class with a little slip of paper that would have somebody's name written on it, and if you saw that slip of paper, then that meant you had to go see the principal or the assistant principal, okay? And nine times out of 10, whoever's name was written down, they were in trouble, right? It was not usually a good thing to be summoned to the office with this piece of paper. And so you would see somebody walk into a class and those folks that were you know, likely to be in trouble would kind of get nervous and those that weren't would kind of get on the edge of their seats and wonder, oh, who's, who's getting nabbed today? And, and so that was kind of the typical reaction. So here I am, I'm in one of these classes doing my work and see this office worker come in, they got a slip of paper and I kind of am like, oh, wonder if one of my friends is, who, who is it? And as soon as I begin to ask that question, I hear my teacher say, uh, Jeremiah, you need to go to the office. And I was immediately shocked and concerned, right? I'd been summoned to the office. And so I was, I was fearing it. And so I take this 
sheet of paper. I shyly get out of my desk, I get the paper, I walk out of the class. And what made it really brutal was that our class was literally on the other side of the high school from the principal's office. So I had this long walk to think about it. And I mean, I did. I thought about everything I did that day. I was like, what did I do? What, what mistake did I make? Who did I wrong? You know, and I just, and what was so terrifying for me was that I couldn't think of anything. Meaning, I didn't know what defense I could have. Like I was trying to anticipate, you know, something that I did so I could show up with like an argument against it to protect myself, but I had nothing. So I, I felt like I was going into it blind. And so I walk into Mr. Segura's office, I sit down and he doesn't even really look at me, right? He just kind of like keeps jotting notes on his paper, kind of shuffling things. And he just asks me, he kind of reveals the whole accusation that I'm about to have to defend. He goes, why are you tardy all your class? And, and I was really confused by the question uh, because it's best of my knowledge, I hadn't been tardy. So I started thinking, I was like, well, did I, like, did I go to this class? Was this class, was this teacher just upset with me? And so I responded and I said, well, I, I haven't been tardy, tardy, which was not a good response because now he just thought I was lying to him. You know, he's like, this is not gonna be good for you, man. Just come out, come clean. And, and so I was like, well, I haven't been tardy. And he goes, it's not what your teachers are telling me. Here, you're tardy all the time. And, and I was like, well, what, what teacher, what class? And I honestly don't remember the name of the teacher or the class that he answered. All I know is it was one that I did not have. And so as soon as he said the teacher and the name, I was like, not in there, not me. You got the wrong guy. And he goes, well, now, wait a second. Like we, the roles had reversed. Now confusion was all on his face. And he goes, you're Jeremiah Smith, right? And as soon as he asked, the light bulb went off in my head because something I've dealt with my whole life is the spelling of my name. And so I said, how's it spelled? And he goes, J-E-R-E. And I was like, not me, man, J-E-R-I. Check it out right here. You got the wrong dude. I'm free to go. You know, and I was so relieved in that moment. And he set me free, thankfully. And it was the first time I realized there was another Jeremiah Smith at Abilene High. Uh, I didn't realize that. And unfortunately, he was making a mockery of the name. And so I was kind of disgruntled at the same time. Here's my whole point to the story, okay? The whole being summoned, is, as trivial as an example that is, was a, as a reality of realizing how inferior I was, right? I, I didn't get to summon the principal. He summons me. And in that inferiority, I knew I was being brought in to give him a defense. And that was, that was concerning. And so you think about God as king, Right, that if he summons us into his presence and we have to give a defense for the accusation that is leveled against humanity, what is that accusation? There's no one righteous, not even one. We have no defense. We stand in his presence fully accused. And yet what does God as king do? He doesn't summon you. You see how Zechariah presents it? See Jerusalem, see your king, he comes to you. <laughs> he doesn't summon you, he comes to you. That's not what kings do. That word means pursue, and that gives us an insight into the heart of our God and into the heart of Jesus. He is that father that runs towards the prodigal son when he sees him coming home. He is not a king that summons you to give a defense. He is a king that comes to you and is your defense. And aren't we glad? And I'll be the first to confess that there are numerous times in our lives where it doesn't feel that way, 
where it feels like we can't see his righteousness, we can't see his victories or see the humility that we long for, the peace that we hope for, and he feels distant. But what I would tell you is that the sufficiency of what Christ has achieved for us allows us to navigate the chaos of the everyday. That in this life, as long as he gives us breath, we do have peace, we do have victory, we do have that hope because of what has been achieved for us on the cross. Because Jesus left the throne room of heaven and he came for you. But I would offer one more reminder to you today, church. It's not just that you have peace in this life because of Jesus entering into Jerusalem that week as that triumphal entry. Let me remind you, he comes again. And the next time he comes, he doesn't come riding on a donkey, he comes riding on a great white horse. And he comes to engage in the war that will end all wars. And at that victory, there will be no more pain, sorrow, suffering, or tears, because there he will firmly establish himself, not just as king, but king of kings and Lord of lords. And so what's our response? Our response is to do exactly what Zechariah has called us to do, rejoice. (laughs) Rejoice. See your king. And when we leave here today and for the rest of our lives, live like he's your king. Live like you know that he hasn't just come for you once, but he's coming again. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And Father, we confess so often that our our lives fall short to deserve the love and the grace that you have bestowed upon us. Father, there's so many times, so many seasons where it's difficult for us to see and to understand. And yet, Father, your righteousness remains Your victory is sure. Your humility continues to comfort. Father, the peace that is found only in you, Father, continues to be a source of strength for our hearts. And so may we leave here today encouraged because we know you are a God and a king who pursues. Father, that you have come and you will come again. Father, help us to see you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and to live a life of worship that forever gives you the praise you so richly deserve. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.